0: The following contains strong language, violence, and nudity. It is intended only for mature audiences. Discretion advised. Spawnometer 0032 we're going to be talking about a story by Todd McFarlane and Greg Apullo there are special thanks to Kevin Conrad again plus Julia Simmons but I don't really see it on the page the book looks like it's by the two main creators the story is called Appearances and besides the lead story there's also a six page backup called Blood Feud Preludes and Nocturnes by Alan Moore and Tony Daniel we're not going to cover that at this time but just acknowledging it the story is dedicated to my wife Wanda (laughs) Kolomidzik and I don't know why I particularly, did decide to shout her out at this point, but good for him. The cover is a silhouette of the new-look Spawn at, I'm assuming dusk. It could be dawn, but it's I don't know if it's a coloring technique or if they use a little bit of a photo manipulation. But you've got a sun and clouds. What do you think of the cover? Um, uh, eh. I like it. You're I think sure. it's one of the more distinctive Spawn covers.
1: Nah, it's kind of downhill from the lynching one.
0: No argument there, but I, I do think it's a good body posture, and I do think that orange hue against the, the silhouette. Really makes it pop and uh, is more distinctive than a lot of the other Spawn covers to come. This, I think it's, generally speaking, a good run of covers we're looking at right now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the issue was released on June 15th, 1995. This was the same month that we got Exo Man of War number 50X and number 50O, drawn by Bart Sears and Andy Smith, so we know what he was doing instead of doing mini miniseries, for instance. This was the debut of the Ruins two part miniseries, the, the super dark anti Marvels. Batman Forever was released with all the accompanying comic books you'd expect and other merchandise. Judge Dread was also released the same summer. We've got New Shadowhawk number one. We've got Spawn Blood Feud number one which is you know why we've got the prelude story in this issue but it's nice to see they coordinated it to where we've got them both in the same month. You've got Violator versus Badrock number one this month. You've got Operation Nightstrike number one this month. Again one of the reasons why that was never finished was probably because of the falling out between Rob Liefeld and Image. So that countdown clock is still kicking in the background.
1: I guess something happened because Spawn knows where the angels are now at. Mm -hmm. He's climbing a building, a big skyscraper. And
0: and I like that splash page where you get the semi-panoramic view of New York, including the Twin Towers. Uh, Definitely nobody used a ruler for this, but it still looks kind of cool because it's almost like the city is swirling around the central point.
1: Oh yeah, no, that is a great splash page. But we see Spawn climbing a building. What's her name? The Raphael? Is it Raphael. I keep wanting to call her Blanche.
0: It doesn't help that it's a lady named Raphael. Yes. And they're really leaning into the age here too. I mean, they put as many wrinkles as possible elongated claw fingers and stuff like that Have and, her and, put and on lipstick. she so. seems
1: to be a chain smoker as well so Raphael is expecting a visit she's getting ready she's kind of you know prepping herself up and then these uh, oh God, very gives, elder-
0: a, gives herself a spritz of binaca.
1: binaca yeah a very very elderly woman comes walking in and tells her how good it is to see her they all seem to be in awe of this other woman who's the oldest of them all more of a Sophia <laughs> as she comes Sophia walking
0: plus in. 30 looks like
1: yeah 30 trillion talking about how you know, it's sad the last one didn't work with her predecessor. How, you know, there's things that are going on in the background. And all of a sudden, Spawn just like smashes in in a great splash page. Mm-hmm. We get a glimpse of the new Spawn suit with the giant gauntlets. Chains are whipping. Let's take
0: a minute and, and break down the suit. So, uh, the changes that we've made is that he has those more like a, a gauntlet. like It's almost like a Wonder Woman bracelet, but like super duper spiky. Uh, everything has spikes all over it. And where McFarlane had more like the studded spikes, like sort of like you'd see on a punk rock jacket from the 80s. Capullo's gone for like much longer, curved, more jagged organic looking spikes all over the place. And so he's got essentially like a bit of a cestus on one hand and then a gauntlet on the other hand. All the red has been taken out of the torso portion of the costume. The skulls that were before more like Punisher skulls now have these long fangs on them and look more vampiric. The chains are bigger and thicker. The pinstriping has been taken out. He used to have white stripes that ran down his arms and down parts of the legs. Those are gone and where he used to just have sort of black leggings for on his feet he's now got the one gigantic covering thing extremely similar to the same kind of boot that Angela has to the point where I have to wonder if Elysium had some sort of influence over his costume and then he's got another like sort of jagged thingy on his uh, other foot plus they switched the sides he used to have that weird thigh pocket thingy on his right leg now it's on the left leg a lot of changes to the costume while still clearly keeping the core qualities of Spawn he's he's still unmistakably spawned, but definitely gives him more of like violent edge to him.
1: True. A little more punk rock, I guess you could say.
0: He seems like blacker too. Like the suit itself seems to be a darker shade of black where I think they used to do more blues in there for a uh, hues. Now we're going with grays and more solid blacks.
1: Yeah. I could go with that. So he's attacking them. Sophia's running away. Bond looks at Raphael. They have some words. Raphael calls in, I guess their security squad. And once again, right. we're
0: right back to like the all ladies too. Everybody has yeah, an all ladies squad. Woman.
1: They go to, you know you see the dots forming on spawn's head yeah they, they, it's he funny that angels have
0: laser targeted you know assault rifles
1: it's kind of weird yeah well because you would figure they'd have like bow staffs like angela did mm-hmm. where she then she throw like lightning bolts out of her staff and shit i don't remember uh,
0: energy blast i don't know about lightning but yeah
1: yeah so spawn grabs sophia has her by the throat he's threatening to kill her i
0: love this that he's kinda... got so many spikes on his costume that he's tearing his own great cape open again
1: i do like the look now mm-hmm. it's cool they all back off once he starts but what what is it that they're all freaking out over?
0: We, they don't. Let's when get let's do the flashback first. See. So they, they are, they've they got Spawn cornered with the laser sights all over his head. He's threatening to kill the woman who identifies herself as Mary because she decided to take the name of the mother of Raphael, who she hadn't thought about for a long time and appreciated being able to call this woman Mary. And then we flash back to the alleys after Bobby was kidnapped by Redeemer.
1: Well, no. So he has Sophia by the throat threatening all the angels back off. Raphael's pissed. We all of a sudden are... We go to a scene with Wanda and Terry where Terry has def- decided to. Wait,
0: are you skipping something? No. I are skipping you, the part, you part you with around. aren't you?
1: No. I, dude, there's one. He jumps through the window. He grabs Sophia. They all got their guns trained on him. They're all kind of reacting to like, do you see who he got? And they're like, yeah. And Raphael does a speech. And then all of a sudden, my next page is Wanda and Terry talking about his transfer papers.
0: So you don't have the page where with Cagliostro. So, okay. So let me, let me jump in here then. So we flash backward. Cagliostro sh- shows up. And he gives Spawn a card telling him that this is where he can find Bobby. And when Spawn first looks at the card, it doesn't say anything, but then he looks again and it gives the address of 9 East 48th Street, uh, which is funny because I decided, well, I, that sounds like a real place for me. Google it. Sure enough, it does exist. It's like an office building. It doesn't look like it's as big as the one pictured in the books because it doesn't look like it's so towers over everything around it, but it is quite tall. Directly across the street is a Dos Toros Taqueria. And inside the building is Church of Sweden, so I guess we can... Can now know that the the version of heaven represented in this series is affiliated with the church of sweden uh, it's also a three-minute walk from rockefeller center
1: holy crap dude that's missing out of my reprint uh-huh. i'm reading it on a reprint so uh, actual yeah. book wanda and terry are discussing how about how terry's about to transfer i'm assuming out of the government
0: oh no i don't she- think so at all i think he's transferring specifically into win section so that he can have access oh, to he? win yeah oh, okay
1: then i misread that i read it as he was leaving
0: yeah no I, I think it feels more and more like the hero of the series is terry he may not be the person with the powers but this is a guy who just his, his entire life was ruined he looked like he was going to go to prison or die he didn't know what was going to happen to his family he is brutally beaten multiple times at this point he's gone through so much shit and most any one of us would just be like fuck it I'm done I'm just going to coast in my job going forward and not start any more trouble and this guy's like no I'm not going to stop until I, I can deal with this he's seen the consequences of going after this guy and he still steps up and is, and is continuing to pursue him uh, he may not be the smartest course but it's definitely the most courageous and the most heroic. And Wanda, despite specifically marrying Terry to not be with a guy like Al, to be with a guy who's going to work from an office and not have to pull his gun and not have to risk his life all the time, she still holds his hand. She still gives him the green light because she knows that that's what he needs to do and she knows that that's the right thing to do. And she's a person who's very right minded. who She works for charities. She works for the benefit of mankind. So it's nice because not only is Terry continuing to step up, even after everything he's gone through, but Wanda is as well. And this this time, Wanda actually gives him her backing. He isn't running around behind her back and keeping her out of the loop and shit. He knows that if shit goes south, it's going to impact on her too. So he's finally doing the right thing by her as well and making sure that they're both on the same page as far as where his next move is. And she gives her consent for him to continue with this. So uh, definitely a pivotal scene in my mind and definitely shows the character of Harry Fitzgerald.
1: Okay. The next thing we see, the chief, he's freaking out. He's calling Jason because Sam, and well, Sam and more than Twitch is busting his balls about what they have on him of course, the folders, the mighty power of the folders. Next, we see I hope this is in your book because it's in mine, where Spawn has Sophia by the throat and he's counting down because he's going to kill her if they don't give him back Billy. He's doing the thread. He does the countdown five, four, three, two, and then he tells him, All right, you win. Or Raphael tells them, All right, you win. She calls up the station. They have Billy attached to this anal probe machine where they seem to be checking him at every orifice because, again, and we kind of missed this part. When the Redeemer teleported Billy, the whole point was because Billy had residue of the necroplasm or whatever, the sponges, and it had never been documented. Mm-hmm. So that's why he took him. For, him to for a spawn
0: to actually give some of his power to another person, it never happened before.
1: And rejuvenate him, yeah, because he has, like, uh, traces of it. Well, so and one thing support.
0: I think is really interesting is we've got two issues in a row where we've got male nudity, and it's pretty explicit, pretty near explicit. I mean, there's only, like, a little dangle thing that's preventing us from seeing the manhood of Bobby. And there's, uh, in both instances, there's a quality of uh, body horror to them the whole process for bobby there's been this weird body horror this transgressive quality this like almost like pseudo molestation that's going on with redeemer and i like that quality of horror being in the book and i also like that they're actually having men in circumstance of sexual torment because they we see that done to women so often that to have the roles reversed it's effective it definitely like whoa shit i hadn't seen that before and it, it's equal time as well if we're going to do horrible shit to women you got to be well willing. to do horrible shit to men and this book is going there so respect for that
1: cool much respect
0: now Um, did you notice though that when spawn was threatening mary the energy bubble around her head that he was threatening her with was really big at first and it gets progressively smaller and he eventually has to cop to the fact that he'd actually was losing his power and by the time he was getting to the end of his countdown he'd already kind of queefed out and there was just nothing left for him
1: yeah well we're gonna find out why in a moment are we yes so
0: (laughs) so they do you know redeemer does bring bobby back to the building where the angels are housed and there's this shot where he's crying and he's drenched in sweat and he's nude and he's only covered by part of Redeemer's cape and there's this really great foreshortening where his hands coming right at you very difficult to pull off and Capullo just fucking nails it but again that body horror and that sense of violation in Bobby it's something we see we rarely see with men in comics and they really fucking sell it here
1: well so Billy arrives Raphael tells him to finish him off Redeemer that is the Redeemer yeah Redeemer shows up, starts jumping around, blasting and this time Spawn is a little more on his A-game. The chains and in the in the cape immediately go into combat mode. He tells Billy to get out of the way. The suit is jumping around. Him and, and uh, the Redeemer are battling. I did think it was pretty cool that he chopped off the Redeemer's hand.
0: Wait, yeah, and he up to damn near the elbow and he does it with his cape.
1: Yeah, so now the cape seems to be having some new types of powers as well. Almost instead of being like a grappling because the chains were always like smash, grab mm-hmm. and the cape was kind of like grab, hold. Now the cape is cut grab hold teleport big idiot whatever mm-hmm. but of course he starts losing his power again
0: yeah and after the arm is cut off too you have all this eldritch energy shooting elemental fire they call it shooting oh, yeah. out of the stump uncontrolled and he's way. like
1: blasting everywhere even his own handlers he can't control this blast yeah
0: the building's coming apart all around them
1: and spawn actually apologizes to sophia as he's running by her telling her you know i'm sorry i didn't mean to do that she's like you're okay he gets hit by a blast him and billy go through a wall and when they're on the other side of the the wall that's when the elite angels pop up they aim their guns they're looking at spawn spawn is trying to protect billy as best he can and all of a sudden they teleport they wake up in the alleyway billy's there spawn's knocked out cog is sitting there telling him don't worry you know he's just passed out he's not dead he goes but not bad for spawn especially since he went up against god and of course billy's like god and we find out that Sophia's actually god
0: it's nice too because instead of having that weird meat splooge thing when he teleported now it's an energy a green energy so it's not as icky (laughs) you know Uh, and we also see that the power usage brought him down to 6902
1: you know the angels are freaking out because apparently no evil is supposed to be able to enter that building but apparently spawn there's something special about him where he was able to penetrate the defenses because apparently there's like a barrier because no one has ever and of course we i kind of missed the part where Raphael was talking about how spawn had violated the pact between heaven and hell for the war and Sophia's like no you kids aren't ready to fight yet when you're ready it'll be time there's something special about him and and she just kind of floats away out of the building.
0: I like too that once Spawn appears, all the other angels are freaking out and being hyper aggressive. And pretty much the whole time she's grinning because she sees something special in Spawn that she hadn't seen uh, in any other Spawns or any other, you know, she knows something's up immediately because. Well, she God. She would, yeah.
1: <laughs> what if God was one of us? Just as Isn't there a, what's a is the like song that says God us. is a woman?
0: Hmm? Yeah, there was. There was. um I don't remember who. Was it Beyonce? I figured you would know this shit. I, I know the the existence of the song, but that wasn't uh, I, on any of my albums. I, I do have that Joan Osborne album though.
1: Okay. So what do you think? So of this what issue? did you think, Frank?
0: I liked it. I, I thought it good action, progressing the story along, some really great artwork, interesting flourishes, definitely a take on heaven that we hadn't seen before with all these, you know, old ladies running around. I, I'm, I'm continuing to enjoy the series.
1: I agree. This issue was definitely my favorite so far, except for the, for the writer's block. I enjoyed mm-hmm. this one quite a bit. And I thought the, it was your a Your favorite
0: edit. of the Todd written ones is what I've given. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Todd definitely stepping up his game now.
0: We'll institute now as a rule that any time we uh, give a compliment like that, unless we specifically mention the writer's block, the writer's block is still the best until yes. something oh, that, actually that, beats no, that, it. That, yeah. that
1: is definitely the uh, that's the that's the mark
0: to meet to to,
1: to, to yes, be one of the one bar, The bar was yet. set with the writer's block, mm-hmm.
0: so we have to specifically point out that it's their actual challenger. Otherwise, we're just talking about Todd issues. Okay. Spawn number 8, Todd McFarlane Productions received bags of letters asking for more more stories, Alan Moore, and so that's how you ended up with the Blood Feud miniseries. Also, McFarlane in the letters columns mentioned how there's a lot of information that he didn't feel like he could convey in the monthly book and because he didn't want to bog things down or make things run any slower than they already were, he enjoyed like doing these little side projects that could explain certain circumstances. So that's kind of the genesis for Blood Feud is the fact that Spawn had a lot of similarities in terms of what he does to supernatural creatures and they wanted to explore that outside of the ongoing series. The story is called Blood Feud, Preludes and Nocturnes. It starts with the curse waking up to the clanging of church bells, blaming his creator and cursing him. Quote, He does not fear God's wrath because having been abandoned by the Lord, bested by spawn and left nailed to an alley wall, he figured God had taken his best shot. When curse calls out to his almighty torturer, the crazy-eyed, long-haired blonde dude who approached him thought he was being overly praised. He also thought the curse was an unfortunate name that suggested that things had gone badly for him while he was in school. My name, on the other hand, is John, much more sensible. John was a self proclaimed monster hunter, and the curse, well, you see where this is heading. John had questions about Spawn he wanted answered, starting with how many times Curse had seen him drink the blood of small children. Despite being sworn to destroy the hell Spawn, even he wouldn't descend to such vile practices, so John dismembered the curse until he was given the right answer the dozens of times, m- m- maybe hundreds. John demanded more practical information about Spawn's habits and associates, and even though he had every intention to keep torturing Curse, he hoped that he wouldn't squirm too much while tied to the bell tower ropes people might be trying to sleep the great iron throats sing out tolling for spawn
1: you not remember that part no I don't was that (laughs) in a regular spawn series
0: yeah that's I had to drive all over Houston trying to find a copy of that issue of spawn with that fucking six page backup since this story has never been collected in trade paperback McFarlane only collected his spawn run not the satellite mini series so there's as far as I can tell there's no other way to read that little short prelude to Nocturne riffing off of Sandman
1: yeah I did not know that I was because when you were talking I'm like, I don't remember reading any of this in fucking Blood Fuse. I'm like, did I read the right fucking Blood Fuse? So yeah, yeah a little it was worried for
0: a minute. Curse never appears again in this miniseries, so it's really left field.
1: That's
0: crazy. So in Overstreet's Fan Magazine number one, covered dated June 1995 there's an interview with artist Tony Daniel conducted by Ben Ray, as well as an uncredited interviewer for The Mighty Eye number one, dated May June of 95. Tony Daniel talked about how he'd been drawing full comic books of his own characters for himself since fourth grade. He got his butt whipped for posing like the whole in a school picture. Inspired since age nine by the likes of Frank Frazetta, Jack Kirby, Jim Lee, and Frank Miller, Uh, he referenced as early favorites Ramita Spider-Man, Kirby Thor, and Fantastic Four, and they said Cole Avengers, but I don't remember Gene Cole never doing the Avengers, and also they misspelled his name, like, brutally, so I'm I'm thinking maybe they meant Bushima, or I don't know, anyway. So later influences on Tony Daniel were the Image Guys, especially Todd McFarlane, Dale Keown, and Will Sportaccio. Tony Daniel hated the way his work looked in print. He, He just never felt like he was good enough, and uh, but he did like seeing what the colors would do at his work once it was printed. He wasn't very happy with Marvel's colors, but he made a point of giving a shout out to Todd Broker for his work on Blood Feud. Tony Angelo's first submission and rejection was to Marvel at age 13. He tore up the letter, he cried, and considered quitting, but he kept practicing. Although he never had much luck in terms of formal art education, he was mostly self-taught. His first big break was on X-Force, even though he drew about nine issues of Elementals that had yet to see print by that point. Uh, He said that the other thing, thing with Kamiko and the Elementals uh, was just drawing comics and get someone giving me a check. No one else saw it or anything. I know they are going to release all my old stuff which looks like my old stuff. And I think maybe like five of those nine issues eventually came out over a span of several years. So Tony Daniel replaced Greg Capullo on X-Force from issues 28 through 43 drawing about 12 of those 15 issues. He also did the first two issues of Gambit and the Externals from the Age of Apocalypse before he fulfilled his commitment to Marvel and bailed leaving the rest of the miniseries of Sal uh, he left. Mar- not because of money or working conditions but because he just couldn't feel like he was himself. He wasn't happy with his own work. He thought Marvel felt the same way. He especially wanted off the X-Books and he wanted to do a solo title like Hulk or Spider-Man two of his childhood favorites. He was just tired of the corporate machine and how nobody was listening to his ideas. He gave a lot of credit to Inker Kevin Conrad on X-Force who Marvel kept trying to replace so neither of them felt like they had job security. Uh, Kevin Conrad was a buddy of Greg Capullo's back to high school. They both had long hair and they played in a metal band together. Capullo and Conrad wanted to be in comics in 1983 but it took a while for them to actually get that worked out he'd been a commercial artist for 10 years before his buddy capullo put in the good word for him with bob harris got him a job on x4 starting with issue number 22 conrad's listed influences include joe Sinnett, klaus jansen art t-bear and scott williams tony daniel was tapped as the artist he was 24th time that he started working on the book he was scared of working with alan moore but he found moore to be such a nice and helpful person on the phone that he was put totally at ease he'd never read any of Moore's comic books he only knew him from the mystique the legend that that he was. Going off of Moore's thumbnails improved his own layouts tenfold, according to the artist, and he felt like he was a better artist overall for having seen uh, or been guided by Moore's scripts. He said of Blood Feud that it was a miniseries packed with mystery and symbolism, and that his ultimate dream project was to work with Frank Miller, hopefully on a Spawn book, but definitely not a DC or Marvel. Tony Daniel wanted to make sure to remain unpredictable and to constantly evolve, but uh, he was having so much fun with Spawn and learning from Todd, and did eventually expect to go off into his own projects day but he just wasn't ready for that yet he had a great sense of camaraderie at tmp he had lots of help getting mentored by todd mcfarlane he mentioned how he stopped drawing blood at marvel because they just color it yellow like pew pu- and he quoted saying todd lets me run loose there's no restrictions also in that same interview kevin conrad took a dig at peter david noting that those who can't draw right so oh, wow reading the two interviews and some of it was set up by the interviewer and i gotta say too that the mighty eye two-page interview was almost unreadable just the layouts were terrible the spelling was bad Grammar. It's its hard to listen to a bunch of writer artists talk shit about writing who can't even lay out text on a page. And it also pissed me off because at one point, Colonial Daniel was talking about all the great ideas he had. And yet, he would never come up with any specific items except for shit like, they colored my blood, the puke colored, and stuff like that. So it's like, are they great ideas? Or is it just a bunch of onanistic bullshit and you don't want to draw the actual story stuff? When Tony yeah. Daniel does his own work, I'll see how well, uh, how great his ideas really were, you know? But it, it doesn't help these guys to talk. Shit about writers, especially when they've got Alan Moore writing the miniseries for them. It's like, well, you guys aren't writing the shit. Alan Moore's writing it. Where the fuck were you at? That leads us into Blood Feud Number One, released on June 22nd, 1995. It came out one week after Spawn Number 32, as promised in that issue. It was a four-issue miniseries on a perfect monthly schedule, and the Angela Special Edition Number One shipped earlier in the same month. The writer was Alan Moore. The penciler was Tony Salvador Daniel, and the inker was Kevin Conrad. The issue was dedicated to Leah Moore, Amber Moore, and all young urban monsters everywhere. Liam Moore would go on to co-author a number of miniseries with John Repian who I think was her husband or her partner for a time. Uh, they both worked on the Albion miniseries that uh, Wildstorm put out that uh, was based on I think plots or ideas from Alan Moore exploring the British comic book characters that I think had fallen into the public domain. The children were born out of Alan Moore's relationship with a mutual lover named Deborah. The relationship between the three of them ended in the early 1990s and his wife Phyllis and Deborah left with the children. That's the Alan Moore scene there. Yeah. Kind of got a little of that William Walton Morrison action going on.
1: The story begins with a couple up in the uh, rooftop of a building just having a discussion about being vegetarian. And all of a sudden, the girl that has put it up a sheet gets ripped to shreds. The kid gets ripped to shreds. Something's ripping through a hallway. A guy sees it, starts yelling at his wife to get his gun. He gets ripped to shreds. Uh, you see fingered fingers. You see slashing toys. And the next we're introduced to SpongeBob. Bond suit. Which what was her name? The suit. K seven Letha, daughter of the seventh house the of seventh K. House of K. Yeah.
0: I liked it. The toy was obviously a Kermit. Oh, yeah, that was a little twisted.
1: I thought that was really interesting that the suit. We already knew it was a symbiotic relationship, but the suit comes from a house. Like they're they're in high regard. That was kind of neat.
0: Well, and we see it hunting what looks to be something along the lines of a Violator, like a not necessarily a Flediac brother, but probably something of the same species, or likely in the province. the hellscape.
1: Yeah, probably a lower level demon, and it's hunting it. It's weird because it's in the shape of a spawn, which I thought was kind of goofy because how you know how would it know it's on a humanoid? Because didn't spawns come out in all different shapes and sizes? I want to say,
0: I, I do think that most of the spawns we've seen have been humanoid. Um, okay. Typically male, too, for the most part at this point in time, but I don't know that it would have been a safe to assume that it would look quite this human. So it might have been cool if it was a little bit more amorphous. And we see a bit more of that later on, too, where the Letha has its own way of uh, moving about and and, uh, representing itself. But a lot of what, what we know to be spawned is apparently already there. The All the chains and the skulls and the spikes and everything. Yeah. They talk yeah, about how it. those are her teeth, essentially, or those are some of her teeth, anyway.
1: Well, I mean, well, I mean Spawn, I mean, McFarland probably couldn't do another symbiote. He couldn't have this liquid spawn-looking shit slide everywhere without getting in trouble for that. So he's going to have to do something a little different. I just, I always thought, like, you know, since, you know, you have, what, Stormwatch and all those and you have all these aliens, would any of those aliens go to hell before Mount Bolgia And would he give them the offer to be a spawn as
0: well. I, that's one of those things. McFarlane definitely was an island unto himself, which w- for the most part worked out well for him. Obviously, everything related to Chapel became a bit of a clusterfuck, and he had to keep trying to explain that over and over again. It would have been nice to see more interaction with the, the greater image universe and elements like Wildstorm, but especially given what happens to Wildstorm, ultimately, it was to the good that they didn't have a ton of that. But I think in the long term, it hurt the image universe because especially after the first few years less and less did it feel like a universe it was always these little separate lines that only interacted under very special circumstances
1: yeah remember when I was in reading I was like you know there are aliens in the image universe and why why do none of these show up before Mount And you know why doesn't he turn them into fucking spawns you don't see like a fucking I don't know some fucking Stormwatch creature and a spawn suit bouncing around so.
0: well anyway. yeah I mean and like especially with Wildstorm you literally have Carabin and daemonite yeah. so they're aliens yeah. that seem to be modeled after judeo Christian mythology and also it, you know and I'm uh, still curious about this uh, how the Lord Hellspont possessed a L- Acuron from Youngblood and that's why he has his distinctive look why he doesn't look like a Daemonite because it, it's actually the Acuron that you're seeing not the Daemonite form.
1: Okay. We didn't see the homeless guys there and they're waking up. Al, Al is thrashing around. Apparently his chains were swinging around and they were kind of worried about him. Then Twitch and Sam are up here. They're taking photos of where the people were basically murdering through an entire apartment complex it looks like and they're you know they're trying to figure out who it is see this is where i was kind of confused this is, is this where al starts thinking maybe his suit's doing it i don't think that he's made
0: that association yet because i'm not even sure that he's aware of the murders as of yet
1: oh, okay he's sitting there and he's looking at his suit i believe the suit does talk to him does it yet or not yet
0: because the suit is acting out beyond his uh, consciousness and doing things that he doesn't want to do in particular they keep talking about how he's having blackouts and he doesn't like that uh so this is where he's starting to think that maybe something happened when the suit was in Elysium, how it freaked out and did stuff that he didn't want to do and changed shape and stuff. And so he's thinking that there's still something residual wrong with the suit after that trip to heaven, essentially. Uh, he thinks that the the problems with the suit are also causing him problems, but I don't mm-hmm. think that they're directly interacting at this point in the story. And I, I think that he's still associated more with the Angela miniseries rather than other events within Spawn's lore.
1: Because he's talking about his blackouts and his concentration, the skulls. Well, I guess they could be one warning markings like the death head moth only three-dimensional or
0: the chains your appendages what are you what is my relationship to you stuff like that
1: yeah he's wondering what it feeds on and he's worried that is it hungry is it looking for something to eat and of course then we're introduced how do you say his name the villain is it snacker or snakers i believe it's sansker sansker okay. uh,
0: john sansker which uh, lets us know that this is the same guy from the prelude story
1: and so john sansker is a monster hunter and he's being introduced to the M. YPD that he's going to be there to help them
0: John Sansker has a press conference and at one point Sam's talking about how Twitch this guy seriously undermines my masculine self-assurance look at him he's a bronzed god and Twitch is like it's a cheap tan sir straight out of a bottle just, looks like the same yeah. brand I use like, I wouldn't have thought that Twitch would use a bronzer but apparently that's the thing that he does and I, I think that uh, this isn't just uh, some bullshit I think they're intentionally referencing this bronzer for stuff that's going to happen later on in the book he
1: starts About Spawn, but does he refer to Spawn as a vampire?
0: He doesn't like the V word apparently, so he likes the term extra normal hazard and puts up beware posters all over town. Like they were all about euphemisms at Image Comics in this time period. They they never wanted to call anything a superhero or a vampire. So there's another instance of that I would say.
1: Okay, and so Spawn is pissed off, you know, about these wanted posters all over the place, and he is somewhat concerned that maybe his suit is doing this stuff.
0: One thing I think is weird with the miniseries too is there's a lot of people that aren't in it like we don't have any of the familiar reporters from spawn comics instead we've got gene perry from the new york times and we don't have bobby or any of the other homeless people that we're used to seeing we've got these these new guys yeah um, they do make a point of mentioning that sam and twitch are having like their ninth anniversary as partners so and they're it, throughout the miniseries but it's weird how there's like this little bit of an isolation like there's this a whole new bunch of people specifically for this miniseries uh so it's not to dip too much into what todd's doing i guess in the main book
1: we're now introduced to where the suit comes from, its house. The issue ends with another massacre
0: and another tenement, and it's all being done through first-person perspective. I think that most probably Alan Moore was trying to reference Sam Raimi's work in the Evil Dead series, where you've just got the camera coming at people swiftly and doing all kinds mm-hmm. of damage. In the Evil Dead movies, it's typically bashing through doors and knocking over trees and such, but going through car windows. And this one, it's going through people and just leaving this bloody trail all over the place. And you can't quite see what's doing it, but it's powerful enough to rip open an elevator and it has no qualms about killing every motherfucker in the room doesn't matter men women children none of that fucking matters and we also keep getting flashes to the k7 letha in its home with the twin sons casting dual shadows on the ground and how the creature has these other sisters and they're building like thrones of skulls and all this kind of bullshit so it definitely makes you wonder what kind of existence the symbiote has and whether or not it's doing these things to humanity Especially because after one of those flashbacks to Letha's time in her own realm, we find that Spawn is blinded by some headlights, surrounded by police, covered in blood near the tenement, appears to be the the mass murderer. And that's how we end the first issue.
1: Yeah, he's covered in blood and stuff.
0: Number two came out July 20th, 1995, is dedicated to Linda Gebby, the champ vamp. And Linda Gebby, of course, is the one who did, I can't remember the name of the strip, but the saucy gal from the um, Tomorrow Stories, I can't remember what her name was, and she also did Lost Girls with... Them and a number of other projects. So Linda Gibby is not only his longtime partner and the the partner that ultimately replaced the threesome that he was in for a while there, but also has been a creative partner with him off and on throughout the years as well. The issue starts with footage from News Night Tonight, where they're basically recapping the massacres that had occurred in the earlier issues.
1: And at this point, Spawn is concerned that he is committing these murders because of his blackouts.
0: Spawn's trying to find the weapons that he had stashed way back in like issue six or so, and when he can't find them in his alley, he goes goes to find a weapons dealer that he knows in the area named Jacob Groenfeld. He's semi-retired. He was an old CIA contact. They were apparently buddies back when Al Simmons was alive. Of course, the weapons did end up in his hands. They used to sip rum in Costa Rica together. So Th- Spawn thinks that he can trust this guy. Meanwhile, we go to scenes of Sansker in the television studio after he's done one of his briefings on the manhunt for Spawn. And curiously, this whole section is being done in the first person, not unlike what we saw from the killer's point of view alludes to him being the killer pretty early on There are in a lot of mystery to the mystery apparently Sansker has a lead so he hops on to a helicopter and goes to an apartment building east of the television studio to talk with a fellow he knows named Sonny meanwhile Spawn is reminiscing with the arms dealer about their time in Costa Rica and the Philippines and how they had this great camaraderie well, they, because the they, had, they had all these jokes in the company days because he was the only black guy they used to call him the snowman and because the arms dealer was the oldest guy they would call him sunny and that's how you know sunny's the one who tipped off sansker also there's a bit about how sansker is a canadian guy and spawns like canadian sunny i've never told you that Sansker was canadian and they never told the audience that shit either they just want sort to of drop that shit no no i was thing.
1: gonna say <laughs> Well then Sansker comes crashing through the window in a uh, superhuman form. I guess you would say no. Well, I mean,
0: he's, he's got a trench coat and his hair is flopping around and there's a line where they talk about eyes like white hot marbles, swiveling, unblinking Hugo boss suit, ugly orange tan. Who is this guy? And the simple fact that he could jump out of a helicopter and fly through somebody's window, lets you know that, you know, there's something to him, but also helps mm-hmm. that he goes, good evening, little monster. I am death. And he even has a little like logo thing there. I don't know if they intended for that to be his superhero, code name or not
1: but it's rather elaborate he and spawn are fighting spawn gets tossed out the window he goes right after spawn they're fighting he's actually keeping pace with spawn he's completely dominating spawn, well, spawn true, keeps yeah, repeating as mean, he's he's choking. Out the window. he beat me he beat me well the suit kicks in afterwards it starts attacking him it basically beats the shit out of him
0: now, his nose is bleeding and he's knocked unconscious for a period of time and then spawn beats the fuck out of there
1: and then he takes off now this is where i was confused in the book because it goes from there to like now he's on the pier talking to some homeless guy talking about get this suit off of me i'm like get that meat hook and hook it onto the suit and and he's running the opposite direction and he's like ripping the suit off his body and they're gonna throw the suit into like this fucking uh, steam trunk and then they're you know he's chaining it up and he throws it in the ocean and he's talking about how like now he can feel the cold and I guess he didn't realize how much that suit protected him
0: and also he's like exhausted he has no energy all of a sudden so it, one wonders if he's driving some of his own sustenance since we never see him eat he does drink some booze every now and again but you don't really see him gathering his own energy and they do mention how he's got the necroplasmic energy and shit but you know and I guess he's got the spawnometer letting him know that that is a finite resource but maybe there's some requirements to keep the physical form going beyond just the necroplasm so it could yeah. be that the symbiote was actually helping to feed him as well as itself but if the symbiote was running around masquering people to get that energy spawn wanted nothing to do with that and that's why he has that big freak out but again it's weird that a the homeless dude just happens to have a steamer trunk right by the pier and B, who the fuck are these homeless people because we don't know any of these of Guys, and Spawn's being really familiar with a lot of them. In fact, he's bossing around and being kind of an asshole to them.
1: True, but they do turn on him as well, because they decide to what, set him on fire. And impale him with a stake. And impale him, that's right, because they thought he was a vampire because of all the wanted signs, and then of course at this time, the suit, I guess, is calling out to Al, whispering to him, or talking about, you know, how they're, I don't know, they're like lovers, or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's more in the third issue. Okay, they, it, basically, it talks about, you tossed me to the dark as if ours was some brief affair, but I am called K-7 Letha. I am raptor queen of murder scarfs and strangle rags. I am she that entangles and I am your bonded bride. I am a part of you. It is like love, save that it's real and lasts forever. Now this is from mission number three August 24th, 1995. Dedicated to Sylvia Moore. 1927 to 1995. This would be Alan Moore's mother who worked as a printer.
1: They've staked him and he's run away on fire. He now, need, he realized he needs the suit. They are bonded together.
0: I don't know he's quite there yet. I, I know he feels the call of Letha, but he's declining that because he's running around with steaks still buried into his chest. Cold river meat, I bob amongst the dead birds and the hypodermics. Daylight, how long was I out? Ahead, twin waste pipes poke out from the bank. A double-barreled shotgun full of crap aimed at the sea. I need a place to hide. Somewhere so wretched that nobody would have the stomach to come looking for me. A place where not even the lowest of vermin would go. And so he climbs into the tanks.
1: And that's where he runs into Violator. Violator laughs and says hi to him. Spawn is like are you know are you going to kill him he's like nah. I I want you when you're healthy I don't want to take you down when you're down yanks the stake out of his chest leads him tells him a little bit more about what his suit is I guess he's more familiar with the different suits
0: because spawns concerned that the creature was a vampire and was drinking blood and that maybe he or it got turned into a vampire when they were bit by the wampir when they were in the infernal dimension with Angela and all this kind of bullshit violator explains the suit doesn't feed off blood it feeds off souls and you Okay. be a vampire because you're already dead what is it k6 k7, k-7 one of them pure breeds all this is a bunch of bullshit and what it is is they've been set up by the bad guy sansker the clown's problem as well because he knows that things are getting kind of hot in new york he doesn't want to deal with it so he puts on a suit and combs his hair and at one point he says boy will you look, you look at like me kind of like Danny DeVito, only more yeah. distinguished yeah. Really don't you think, think. Essentially, the clown appears to be getting out of town cosplaying as Tony Twist. He makes mention of how, uh, anyway, I'm off to Washington. Washington. No competition there except pussy young bloods. Even you whipped one of them. So I think, you know, we already did Violator Bad Rock, but I think this is actually where we see Violator going to Washington, which is where Bad Rock is going to capture him and go into the Violator Bad Rock miniseries. Oh, okay. So that's that's
1: where that series comes. Yeah, I think
0: that's the setup. But unfortunately, I wasn't aware of that. And it's months later, so I fucked the continuity for the podcast, unfortunately but yeah I think that's what
1: happened because in this one I remember at the time I don't remember reading the series when it first came out but I do remember I was keeping up Someone with Spawn and I always thought it was weird when Twitch showed up and he's like in a cast wasn't he or he's in a hospital
0: yeah so and I guess that's where this is happening too one thing that they do show is very early on Twitch especially but even Sam because Sam can sometimes be a little bit obtuse they both don't buy into Spawn being the killer Twitch in particular uh, starts investigating Sansker he notes the all natural Golden Easy Tan. He notes the inconsistencies, how somebody had been robbing blood banks, how nobody was actually getting their blood drained in these Mm -hmm. tenements, so why you keep talking about a vampire when nobody's actually getting their blood sucked. And he eventually breaks into Sansker's office, finds all these clippings from his monster hunting days that go back to 1704 and Captain Jean St. Clair, also called Jean Sanscour, and that's when he gets found by Sansker and assaulted.
1: Spawn is is going after sansker and we find twitch twisted up and stuffed into a mini fridge sam had made
0: his way to sansker's office as well he wasn't aware that twitch was mia but he sees some blood dripping from a cabinet and when he looks inside he sees the twisted and bloody form of twitch not yet dead which i think is a bit strange you'd think that he would either kill him or not kill him you know you wouldn't think there'd yeah. be this in between he'd also figure that maybe if he was going to suck his blood he would but we see a little bit later on that that's not the case but we're pretty mm. clearly establishing that sansker is a very vampire and that he's been using the spray tan to cover up for that role also spawn is trying to make his way back to his suit because he recognizes now that he's going to need it and he takes a a car that some teenagers had hot wired previously and trying to make his way to the dock sansker catches up with him and trashes him again spawn goes into the drink but sansker has an issue with running water so he doesn't want to be swamped and he also makes a point about hawk talking about how tell them heartless john sends his records and that's where he'd gotten that one sans whatever code name because i guess that's French for no heart or some shit like that. Yeah. And then that leads us into the final issue that was released on September 21st, 1995 dedicated to Jake and Joseph Moore, The Men of Tomorrow, which unfortunately I haven't been able to find any reference to. So I don't know if those guys went off and did something else. I don't know if they're nephews or what they are.
1: Okay. And so in this one, I'll sink you to the bottom. He's looking for the suit that's in the, the steam trunk at the bottom. He's being called. He's trying to reach his suit. He's realizing now how important the suit is to him. And Sanster is confronted by by Sam. And that's where they kind of do the big reveal that, you know, he's a vampire. Tells him to hold him. He has some police officers. Well, no, Sam wasn't 100% sure he was a vampire yet. I don't
0: know about, the, I don't think he knew that he was a vampire, or, or if he did, then he didn't take proper precautions. But he did uh, know that it was clear that he, uh, Sansker had assaulted Twitch. And then, yeah. that's when Sansker just goes on this long-ass fucking monologue. This dude is just, like, expositing anything, every, anything and everything that he can here at the end. He strips news he's got all these like tribal tattoos on him not a lot like compared to what we see today on streets of New York City uh, yeah. not that bad but for the 90s I guess he had a lot of tattoos and basically talking about how he's been doing the whole monster hunting thing for years but he only rods from blood banks he doesn't drink blood from humans because of their sexual disease that had claimed a bunch of his frellos in the last decade and just on and on and on and then he just starts fucking killing all the fucking cops he can get his hands on rather brutally. he kicks a guy's spine out and shit
1: yeah he rips one's head head out puts his foot through another one uh, and the whole time this is when spawn is looking for the suit finds the suit and immediately the suit wraps around him uh, he's about to kill sam he's trashing the, the police car he's already murdered any officers that it's left he has sam and just is about to do the killing strike spawn shows up and starts to battle him now that was okay so that's where i was a little confused in this one so he's not your traditional vampire correct
0: he makes a point of talking about how he has magical abilities but obviously he still avoids running water he could probably gets stabbed Ached, tends to avoid sunlight and he wears the spray on tan they one, at one point spawn says scans uh, oh yeah the, the one thing too is apparently he's working so hard to like build up trust in new york so they basically take over and push all the other supernatural beings out of new york and have the city to himself and he talks about how he's already run the violator out and how this is just a dry run for hong kong which is so promising it's like and i know hong kong's a, a badass city but i don't think that you could level up to hong kong from new york but whatever yeah and then at one point spawns like Sansker. Listen to yourself. You sound like some kind of undead Donald Trump. You're a megalomaniac. And I, I think that the whole spray tan thing is probably a, a reference to that. So even back in the mid nineties, okay. they had somebody's number.
1: Wait, wait, Did this come out before Blade or after Blade?
0: This is before Blade,
1: so uh, okay, it's possible so that, that so the whole vampires covering himself with sunscreen was probably taken from this.
0: Yeah, I don't remember that happening before this point. I, I, it may have. Yeah, because I don't but, ever
1: remember reading that. Idea. Yeah. It's quite, but I don't ever remember reading a book where like they were smart enough to put like this super you know 5,000 SPS bronzer. Uh, bron- bronzer to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing it in that movie and thinking that was clever and then reading this I'm like okay well it's been used. I was just kind of curious. it
0: had been a hundred years since Dracula had died. The world of the white ones has been without a leader ever since until now until me. We don't get into vampire mafia like you do in the Blade movies but True. there's clearly a hierarchy and you know Tribune. there's a lot of similarities between the two I would say. So it's possible there's an influence there.
1: Now, Spawn does use his magic and he talks about how he can finally smell and taste his magic and um, that's when he starts warping, I guess morphing into this creature. I, I mean, I'm not sure is it like a vampiric creature or I'm
0: wondering since they made a point of mentioning that he was Canadian and maybe there's some elements of the Wendigo to him, but
1: Oh, that's a good point. I didn't yeah, think
0: about that. All, I mean, I, I think that the, the whole point of the tribal tattoos is they're supposed to be showing some sort of a Native American association, but the guy himself is clearly not that. So yeah. presumably he was some French colonizer who appropriated some Native American mysticism to make himself a super vampire, essentially.
1: Right, because he does talk about how he's been going through the centuries committing these crimes and going by different names. But the reason I bring it up is because, okay, so I have some of the old Spawn toys, and I do have this snake form monster, which I never knew what it came from.
0: What happens is that the Sansker gets exposed to the sunlight, the dawn finally rises, and Spawn thinks that he's got this guy dead to rights, and the guy even says, oh shit, without any euphemism or anything. There's no little symbols or Thing they actually let him curse in this one, and the guy is like, You know, this is just such a cliche. This is almost camp, you know that. What do you think? That I'm going to turn to dust just like in the movies? I'm not Mel I'm Heartless John, and I'm a vampire's vampire. I garble holy water and pick my teeth with crucifixes. In the Sudan, I once endured an hour of noon heat. So basically, saying that I'm one of the extra badass vampires, yeah. super duper powered, and eventually he's spawn perceives it as his skin starts to melt, but I actually what happens is he's fusing and he's turning into a more serpentine creature he's all serpent tail and he ends up diving into the sewers
1: the whole time taunting spawn but like i said i have several uh spawn figures still in their packaging and i always wondered where did this character come from because it it always felt sometimes like mcfarland was just creating shit just to throw it out there just to fill toy orders at the time and now i'm like oh shit it was from bloodfume now now i know where that fucking snake creature comes from
0: now did this guy ever turn up again though he made a big deal about how he's going to take hong kong in 2070 and, you know how he wasn't done yet, but uh, I don't want see no this
1: idea. I have no idea. The snake creature escapes, goes into the tunnels, is laughing at Spawn the whole time, talking about, you know, this was what, like you said, a dry run, but it, that he's already fucked him in terms where the humans are scared of him. Everyone's scared of him now. Like, no one will trust him. They all think he's a murderer, so he's fucked his life. He has no friends and he's relieving. And so Sam walks up and tells them they can fix this and Spawn at this point, I guess. So this is canon, correct? It's supposed to be, yeah. Okay. I mean, Again,
0: we, we tied directly into Violator Bad Rock and then I think they're going to reference this going back into Spawn and you know okay. the preview is in an issue of Spawn itself so and they talk a lot about how Tony D'Angelo is going to go from this series to do a run of issues on Spawn when it goes bi-weekly so yeah it seems like it's pretty tightly tied into everything.
1: I mean Spawn just disappears he jumps in the ocean and just like sinks to the bottom or you know where all the refuge is because he feels like you know he has no one to protect him but the suit like the suit always loves him the suit's always there for him not Wanda not Harry and Cyan. There was a point where it was kind of like very emo, where he's just like, oh, the only thing that loves me is this suit. Which I guess kind of feels like the symbiote from Spider-Man. At
0: least Peter had Aunt May. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, well, he married Jane, but...
0: but yeah, know. He, he definitely just... goes full Robert Smith at the end. No reason to remain here in the world of day and light. When everything the sun reveals just shows me what I've lost. The dark is like a mother. Dark will soothe you. Dark will take away the pain. It's always night down here. The waterlogged mattresses don't know me. The lamprey flickering through the shadows doesn't give a goddamn welcome to the night. And I guess he's just gonna fucking stay down there and hang out with the fishies and shit, so I'm really I, curious to see when Spawn collides with this nonsense, the actual ebook, Yeah, because
1: like I say I remember reading it and I was thinking, wait, does that show up in the rest of the fucking book? Like, that's really fucking weird.
0: Yeah, I guess I'm a little late when it came to Violator Badrock, and maybe a little early when it came to Spawn, but because this is the issue that had the tie-in story, I felt like it'd be good to go ahead and get this knocked out plus yeah. since we're talking about Spawn in his new costume, this is the miniseries that elaborates upon elements of the costume. So it seemed like a good time to not to do it. Basically,
1: there was moments where it felt very Alan Moore, and there was moments where it felt very paycheck. Like it just didn't feel very deep. Like I hate comparing all his work. Like you know, I do on occasion like to go back and read V for Vendetta or The Watchmen stuff like that, and that that feels deep. And I get you know this is only a four issue. It just I don't know. It seemed very rushed.
0: Yeah, why would you spend all these issues of build up to the mystery which is never really that much of a mystery because you only ever have one suspect that isn't spawn and they make it really clear early on this guy is uh, some bitch especially if you read the prelude story so there's not yeah. an actual mystery and then he just like fucking vomits out all those rings of exposition with still, without still making it super duper clear I mean I guess he's trying to become the new king of the vampires and shit but I don't know how conquering New York necessarily plays into that and I don't know why it would be a good idea for him to run around with the bronzer, you know, uh, and, and make a big spectacle of himself. He just seems like an asshole. Yeah, very much paycheck. I, I flash back to the, the interview that uh, was conducted in Hero Illustrated that we covered on the uh, Violator Badrock Bad Rock episode, where he's saying that it's so hard for him and it's so taxing for him to do all the heavy-duty, deep stuff, with all the research and shit. And so he, he needs something light, and he also points out that it's lucrative to do this shit. And I think there's an instance where McFarlane literally like gave him the basic plot, like here i want you to do a mini series about this here, and so he did that and uh yeah he, it has its flowery flourishes but it's still pretty crap for alan moore and it has a rush job and i uh, this is one where peek behind the curtain we basically have been months delayed in putting out the podcast in part because you had bullshit going on and then i had bullshit going on and you know i was set on covering this particular miniseries i'd already done the album art for it and i even started reading it months ago and it was not Super engaging when I started on it, and then I kind yeah. of sped read it this afternoon. That's part of why I didn't take deep notes, but also because by the end of the second issue, I'm like, there isn't a lot here. And then once I got to the last issue, she's like, I'm really glad I didn't take a fuck- bunch of fucking notes on this because this isn't very good. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, no, no,
1: I, I, I mean I blew through it. I was a little disappointed. I'm dreaming. I'm just like, you're right. It was not very engaging. Why
0: yeah, not? and then and fucking the clown shows up out of you know, oh I just happen to be in the same fucking toxic waste pipe that you're climbing oh, yeah. into, which is why I'm gonna put on a suit and comb my hair because. I I'm not going to walk around smelling like toxic waste and make a point of saying he just smells like cheap clone. It's like you are in a toxic waste tube. And what does the clown do? He does more exposition. Instead of Spawn ever finding anything out or being a detective or some shit like you get in a Batman story, he just ri- finds the guy who's going to tell him everything he needs to know. Because he never, he, Spawn never does any fucking work in his own stories. He's just the bumblefuck who runs into the guy who actually knows what's going on. Sure, yeah. And this would analyze
1: that. that shit. So I, I don't know. I was very underwhelmed by this story.
0: Yeah, yeah, same here. So yeah, it was not worth the wait. Sorry, guys. No. Yeah, sorry. I found a book called Comics Debut. It only came out with two issues, and it was produced by Comic Shop News, who do the little folded pamphlet that you've seen in comic shops for the last thirty years or so. Yeah. And what they try to do is put out a comic book. There's nothing but preview pages for upcoming books. And the first issue, cover dated June 1993, featured pages from Valeria versus Spawn. And as we talked about previously, the book was eventually published as Nighthawk. But what's cool about this Comics Debut is they actually have pages where they were still it was still Spawn on the, the, these pages. So it's like a couple of three pages that are fully colored, uh, unlettered, and then a couple of pages that were still in the pencil stages. So if you check out our Tumblr, pretty much every episode of Spawnometer still has a Tumblr. I recommend checking it out so you can actually see a compare and contrast between the original pages and the, the pages with Nighthawk. So and it's just cool to see Neil Adams draw Spawn. Okay. Uh, and speaking of the Tumblr, Batstick blog liked the Trencher Mr. Monster Tumblr, and uh, Superheroes maybe now reblogged Episode 25's Tumblr for Image Zero. On WordPress, Seth Best liked our post Spawnometer27, Trencher featuring Mr. Monster, and the Colorful Sisters liked the post uh, Spawn30 Tribe, and followed us as well. As far as Twitter, we got attention from 20th Century Geek, Adriano, Alex Chung, Baby Skeletor, CH, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Citizen Kane Minute, Coffee and Comics, Comics 42, Days of High Adventure Podcast, who also thanked us for playing their promo on the last episode, Del Dracula, Doc Strange, Dr. Paul Pop culture BGSU Ed Moore Edward Huey Fanholes Podcast Green Lantern HG The Hammer Strikes Random Geeky Stuff History of Comics on Film hokling Iowa's Joe Crawford Jason Snicked Venable Jeffrey Brown Jocktastico, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast Cristados Longbox Crusade Luke Jackanetti, Earth Destruction Directive Marvel Universe Online Mike It Send Aliens to Me Nuka Carl Quantum Podcastings Michael Bailey schluckbus Inc. Siskoid Sue Kent Ant Talk Nerd. To me, Tim Price, the Pod Crasher, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, you should be listening. Under the Influence, Unpacking the Power of Power Pack, Warlord Worlds, and Wonder Woman: Warrior for Peace
1: podcast. Thank y'all. Hopefully, we'll get back to the writer series, and I can trash on that some more. But this, was, and again, <laughs> well, I, I'm a, and see, on a more fan.
0: That's another yeah. thing that hurts too is because we're doing this podcast, and because it's the lowest priced comic book in the industry. Spawn is still a three dollar comic book. And a while back, Ken Lashley came onto the book, and I was thinking, you know, this. Is like the first time that one of the biggest black superheroes in comic books is going to be drawn by an actual black artist and one I quite like and so I I felt like an urge to go ahead and start reading Spawn again plus um, Carlo Barberi uh, took over the artwork and even though I don't know that he's the best choice for a Spawn book I think he did a good job on it and I really like his artwork in general so I decided to start buying Spawn and therefore reading Spawn again and we're talking about like post issue 300 right so Mm -hmm. uh, this is deep 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 into the run and uh, I I had to stop it's, really? it's just so fucking bad. It, it, we go back to the, the interview with Tony Daniel and Kevin Conrad earlier on. It's been 300 issues. McFarlane's has written probably 250 of those, 200 of those. He's only gotten worse as a writer in the years since. The book still has no forward momentum. And now he's doing this whole thing where he's trying to launch a whole Spawn universe and try to be yeah. like the Spawn cinematic universe at some point because he still wants to do the movie and shit. And it's like, it's still Gunslinger Spawn and Cheese Spawn and, and fucking like, there's no fucking idea is here, and all it was, the, the majority of the stuff that I read was Spawn's on an island with other versions of Spawn fighting yet another version of Spawn, and they're all falling in a hole, they all have to climb out of the hole, they're fighting amongst each other, and they get off the island, and they have to go back to the island, it's like it's just, it's horrible, it's bad, wow. it's so hard to read this shit, and I know it got a big sales bump with issue 300, and it's now the longest running independent comic book of all time, but everything that you ever thought was wrong with Spawn is as bad or worse 350, 320 20 issues later whatever it's at it's just so bad and it's like knowing that Todd's just going to get worse as he progresses and become even more anti-writer since he hasn't had a script on the book in a long time mm-hmm. it's like this is still the spine of our podcast and we're still going to be covering Spawn stuff but it's really hard to get excited about Spawn specifically as a book Um, having read it and seen that it's still just an absolute fucking shit show and it's multiplying and he's going to have more shitty books besides it just takes a there's there's so much potential in the Spawn concept. You could turn this over to some writers and do some really cool shit. And I do think I, I, there's a new book called King Spawn, and I think that some of the guys involved with Philadelphia are doing that. So at least he's got some co-writers, and he's brought in some other artists, uh, which is nice. Some some name brand guys. He's obviously spending a little bit of money on this shit. I wish he would at least get a scripter for his own book so that it would read better and not be so grammatically questionable. And I think there's still some misspellings in the book itself, and the dialogue just sucks. And It's just, it's fucking awful. Todd, quit fucking writing. (laughs) not any fucking good at it. Have you got to get, again, that's what happened here apparently is Todd said, hey, Alan Moore, I would like you to do this over here. And Alan Moore did that shit. As bad as this miniseries is, this is like deep, mediocre, especially for Alan Moore. It's like like flatline Alan Moore. But it's not terrible. It's readable. It's just not that good. Whereas reading Todd McFarlane writing is like painful. It hurts. It's not flat. It's like dipping down low it's it's just bad so i don't want to read any more Todd McFarlane shit and you know so that that, a lot of the promise of spawn recognizing that 300 issues later is still going to be an absolute shit show it's just it definitely hurts the momentum son but also it's just we couldn't get on the same page and spawn over takes a little bit more in terms of research and reading and shit and we just couldn't get it together to get that done in part because it fucking sucks damn (laughs) sorry yeah anything to elaborate on with this one no sir we're done
2: yeah Welcome, one and all, to the Fire and Water Racetrack and Arena. Please direct your attention to the center of the track, where you will see 36 buses lined up between two ramps, a tank full of live man-eating sharks, and a high wire stretching over it all. The rocket cycle is warmed up and all the nets have been removed. Who would attempt these stunts just to entertain and inspire his audience? What kind of man? What kind of hero? There, coming in on a rocket-powered skateboard, it's the Death-Defying Human Flycast! cast. Join me, Max Romero, and a rotating roster of guests as we dive headfirst into the colorful comics of Marvel's The Human Fly. The death-defying Human Fly cast is a limited-episode podcast spotlighting the adventures of a man who comes back from a crippling auto accident to become a mysteriously masked stuntman with a mission, to inspire others to never give up hope. We'll also talk about the real-life Human Fly, a daredevil with a murky past and a desire to be the best stuntman in history, until the day he just disappeared. The actual human fly would vanish as suddenly as he had materialized, but not before sparking a comic series featuring what would be the wildest superhero ever. Because he was real. The Death Defying Human Flycast. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It's gonna be wild.
0: in 1974 four men literally changed the face of rock and roll forever
2: gene simmons peter chris ace freely and paul stanley wanted to become the band they never got to see
0: over the next 40 plus years the music the makeup the merchandise and the loyal fan base have propelled kiss to one of rock and roll's elite groups
1: with kiss heading down their end of the road
0: tour we thought we would start our journey turn it up to 10 because we love it loud right between the eyes is a podcast all about our favorite band kiss we will be covering all eras of kiss with the various albums studio live and compilations plus album mashups and more we will also cover solo and band projects from all members past and present while also looking at the various bands that have opened for kiss as well
2: Not to mention all of the fun items in
0: the KISS catalog. TV appearances, long-form videos, merchandise, comic books. Come on, the list goes on and on.
2: Coming in late May, early June 2021
0: to a podcast platform near you. Follow us on Twitter at
1: RBTE Podcast. Loud. I want to hear hear it loud. loud. Right Right between between the the eyes. eyes.
0: Greetings, guys and ghouls. I'm the Invisible Dan Colon, and this is The Monsters That Made Us. Join Monster Mike Manzi and I on the last Friday of every month as we celebrate all of the spooktacular characters and films in the Universal Studios classic monster series. From the Phantom of the Opera to the Creature Walks Among Us, we sink our teeth into all the gory details as we dissect the films that gave us some of the most iconic movie monsters of all time. The Monsters That Made Us is brought to you by the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more information, head on over to CageClub.me. That's CageClub.me. This is a fan-produced, not-for-profit podcast. No copyright infringement is intended. Any use of copyrighted materials believed to be covered under fair use. If you don't agree, you can go straight to hell.